1: This
0: is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on this week's program, The Natural Florida, as depicted in the writing of Marjorie Stoneman Douglas and Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings.
2: Conservation has taken on a new meaning. I think it's pretty much synonymous with environmentalism today.
0: The South Florida legend of Sexton's Mountain. And we'll talk with Gary Mormino, author of the book Land of Sunshine, State of Dreams.
3: Florida is a dream state. There, there are not many dreams. they are probably Hawaii, California, and Florida.
0: All that and more coming up on Florida Frontiers.
4: They paved paradise, put up a parking lot With a pink hotel, a boutique, and a swinging hot spot But you don't know what you've got till it's gone They paid paradise, put up a parking lot They took all the trees, put them in a tree museum And they charged the people a dollar and a half just to see them seem to go, that you don't know what you've got till it's gone. They pay paradise,
0: Marjorie Stoneman Douglas and Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings are two of Florida's best-loved writers. Douglas is best known as a journalist and non-fiction writer whose 1947 book The Everglades, River of Grass, is recognized as one of the most important works written in support of America's environmental movement. Rawlings is best known as the Pulitzer Prize-winning novelist who wrote The Yearling in 1938, which was also made into a popular film. Both Marjorie Stoneman Douglas and Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings display a passion for Florida's natural environment in their work. Leslie Kemp Poole is an adjunct professor in the Environmental Studies Department at Rawlins College and a Ph.D. candidate in American History at the University of Florida. Poole says that given Douglas's fame as the champion of the Everglades, people may be surprised to learn of Douglas's early views of the region.
2: Douglas early on uh, kind of reflected the progressive conservation view that wise use of land was the best use. And so, one of the ways that Douglas and many others looked at the Everglades was that its best use was probably to become agricultural and particularly she was interested in it becoming a center for tropic agriculture, she talked about. One of the products she mentioned specifically was perhaps mango, Orchards there.
0: So early in her career, the woman most identified with Everglades restoration actually advocated draining the fragile ecosystem.
2: Absolutely, but for as the use is agriculture. Now she would change that opinion dramatically, and she actually I think exemplifies the change in attitude many people in Florida and it nationally had over the course of the century. And certainly, she lived to be over a hundred years old, so she's a great example of that.
0: Today, we think of conservation as almost synonymous with environmentalism, but that was not the case in the early 20th century, Leslie Kemp Poole.
2: The idea co- arrives in the late 19th century and the idea was wise or best use using scientific data to use resources. So a river could be better used if it was dammed and hydroelectric power came from it and water was available to cities or agricultural uses. Uh, for humans, and that's really the idea: is that conservation was best use of resources for humans. So while we may think of damming a river as a bad idea today, back then that was perfectly in line with use of resources. So draining everglades or draining swamps for agriculture would certainly be in line with best use of land for the people.
0: Marjorie Stoneman Douglas moved to Miami in 1915 to work at the newspaper that would become the Miami Herald. Cynthia Holler of the City University of New York is studying Douglas's writing and says that regionalism quickly defined Douglas's work.
5: She began to become associated with people who believed in the idea that um, that social economic development should be grounded within the particular geographic aspects of a region. And as she was working with the clubs and and it was really a zeitgeist of the area and of the time, uh, she picked up on that and began to promote. South Florida in her columns and South Florida's unique characteristics in very eloquent literary ways that I think captured her audience's imagination about what South Florida was.
0: Douglas is now remembered for her vocal opposition of agriculture in Florida and its impact on the Everglades. Cynthia Holler agrees with Leslie Kemp Poole that Douglas's views of agriculture evolved over time.
5: In terms of explicit ideas about what she felt about conservation, she doesn't necessarily explicitly um, say, I am this kind of conservationist, but I think she is, her legacy is the progressive era idea of the wise use of natural resources, the more the the Pinchot and the idea that, that we should steward our resources, and I think this comes out later in River of Grass, so that When, by the time you get to the 11th hour in River of Grass, you're shown an agriculture that has given over its stewardship through greed, pig-headedness, willfulness. It has neglected the land, it has neglected the people who work the land. And by violating those stewardship principles, has devolved into the degradation of the everglades,
0: gardening can be seen as an effort to control nature, but Holler points out that Marjorie Stoneman Douglas was a gardening enthusiast
5: oh yes, she loved it and and um, she she and again had this very close relationship with Mabel White Dorn, who was very active in starting the South Florida Garden Clubs and um, gave her some plants for her own home and area uh, but it was not so much control it, it It was interesting because some of the other Florida writers like Harriet Beecher Stowe and and, um, Constance Wilson do deal with this issue of controlled growth versus tropical growth. But I think she loved South Florida and relished the idea of tropical plants developing in an area that was appropriate for them. Although they were not all native plants, they were plants that she saw as appropriate to the geography of the region.
0: Marjorie Stoneman Douglas is best known as a nonfiction writer, but Cynthia Holler shares a poem by Douglas that demonstrates her belief in a bond between people and nature.
5: This is the last stanza of a poem called Roots that appeared in her columns, her galley columns, which she wrote for the Miami Herald uh, in the early 1920s. And the point that I was making was that uh, often for Douglas, Plants and people are integrally connected and spiritually connected. And metaphorically, plants can be people and people can be plants. In the last stanza, she says, So I have communion with old roots of trees, dig deep as they do, with elbows and with knees, feeling through me all that still strength go, rock strength and earth strength, and then I'd grow. And you will see these root metaphors throughout her writing.
0: Douglas's environmental advocacy is clear in much of her writing, including the book The Everglades' River of Grass, but the environment plays an interesting role in her lesser-known fiction as well.
5: In the short story The Bees and the Mangrove, for example, the female protagonist, Penny, who is a hard-working young a woman who wants to make a success of a farm comes up against all the trials and hardships that farmers come up against including the Mediterranean fruit fly, the closure of banks, and the strategy that saves her is to care for a grove of Hayden and Saigon mango trees and to learn about them and to come up against the threats that threaten them and in in meeting the threats that might savage her mango crop, she meets the same threats that might savage her personally. Uh, In terms of her ability to, to maintain herself financially is similar to how she kept the mango trees warm. Her ability to establish a loving relationship with her neighbor Stephen is similar to the way that she used the bees to pollinate the mango trees. So her own personal spiritual development is connected in integral ways to the care of these mango trees.
0: Part of what makes Douglas's major work, The Everglades' River of Grass, so influential and effective is Douglas's passionate romantic writing style. New York columnist John Hersey reviewed the book in 1947. Cynthia Holler.
5: He started out his review by saying, Marjorie Douglas has produced a poem. And he was speaking of the first chapter of Everglades River of Glass, which is very lyrical, very poetic, almost biblical in its intonations. And if you read through that chapter, which talks about the rock in the Everglades and the life in the Everglades and the water in the Everglades, it is like reading a massive, almost a creation poem, except that it's specifically about Florida and the Everglades. And um, he specifically commented on how poetic that part was. And the latter part of the book is it's a mammoth Effort and it, it's epic its proportions in terms of its integration of anthropology, history, botany, um, and many things that she researched over the course of four years and brought together in a very astute uh, way. But that first chapter in particular is, has that inspirational kind of rhapsodic way that she could speak about Things in the world.
0: At the age of 79, Marjorie Stoneman Douglas became an environmental activist and remained so until her death in 1998 at the age of 108. Marjorie Kinnan Rawlings lived far north of the Everglades at Cross Creek near Hawthorne, Florida. Rawlings celebrated the natural Florida in her work, including the 1938 novel The Yearling and her 1942 autobiography Cross Creek. Leslie Kemp Poole.
2: Well, whereas Rawlings isn't really what we would consider an environmental activist today, her writings do start to reflect that she's seeing species disappearing. And she doesn't seem so worried about it, but she is acknowledging it, so it's in her consciousness. And by 1943, she actually had become really interested in what was happening to Florida forestry. She was worried about uh, trees being cut, particularly the longleaf pine forests. And she wrote a piece for a uh, Collier's magazine in which she talked about how we're fighting and she calls it a critical moment to preserve the God given forests without which we should be helpless atoms on a sterile earth. That's a tremendous uh, consciousness that she has demonstrated in that statement and um, she went on and wrote a letter to her husband who was in the military at the time in, in the American field service and she says you know if I, if I could be of help um, perhaps I ought to in writing about these things and she says I might go down in history as the gal who saved the nation's trees. So she was, she reflects that growing consciousness and um, maybe she might have become an activist at some point too. Who knows?
0: In Rawlings books she describes her own efforts at citrus growing and reflects a love of working and living off the land.
2: I always think that nature is one of the main characters in her books. Uh, The setting, the uh, description of the seasons, the Uh, importance of agriculture to sustaining life and and people going hunting and living off the land. That's definitely part of her books. While she doesn't really call for activism in her work, she was becoming called to it, I think, late in life.
0: Ideas about conservation evolved throughout the 20th century, and as the 21st century continues, Leslie Kemp Poole says that environmental awareness in Florida seems to be growing.
2: While conservation in the Early 20th century meant draining the Everglades. By the middle of the century, when we're starting to understand ecology and we're having a broader understanding of systems, we begin to understand that agriculture was not a good thing for the Everglades. And so while today uh, conservation has taken on a new meaning, I think it's pretty much synonymous with environmentalism today. It, uh, we are seeing the, the results, you know, the plumbing of the Everglades that now we're trying to replumb. The minute the Kissimmee River was channelized, we said, oh, that was a really bad idea, and now we're trying to work to restore it. So with better scientific knowledge and uh, a long-term look at all the crises that some of the early ideas had, we're beginning to, I think, have a better understanding and, and treatment of the natural world.
0: Leslie Kemp Poole teaches at Rollins College in the Environmental Studies Department, and Cynthia Holler teaches at City University of New York. Both presented papers at the 2010 Agricultural History Society Annual Conference at Rollins College.
4: Don't it always seem to go that you don't know what you've got till it's gone? Paradise, put up a parking lot. Ooh, bah, 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 bah. I just don't Seem to go, but you don't know what you've got till it's gone. up a Pay Paradise, put up a parking lot.
0: This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Broke Please join us on the web at myfloridahistory.org to find out about upcoming events, shop for great books on Florida history and culture, listen to archived editions of this program, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org.
6: In 1513, Spanish explorer Juan Ponce de Leon landed on Florida's shore, beginning a cultural relationship between Spain and Florida that will be commemorated throughout the state on its 500th anniversary in 2013. This moment in
1: Florida history features historian James Cusick. If you think Florida's problems with public education are recent, think again. In 1786, St. Augustine established a public school for boys. The sons of free people, white or black, could attend without charge, although Protestant boys would not enroll since classes included instruction in the Catholic faith. The school was plagued by budgetary woes, a scarcity of teachers, and overcrowded classrooms. The teacher for reading and writing was an ex-convict. Joseph Monasterio had injured his hand while serving his sentence at the Castillo de San Marcos, so he got another kind of hard labor as instructor for 80 boys, ages four to 14. He proved to be a capable teacher, though his salary of eight pesos a month was less than the pay of the man who swept the church floor. Despite hardships, the school continued to operate until the end of the Spanish colonial period in 1821. University of Florida historian,
6: James Cusick. This moment in Florida history was created and produced by the Florida Humanities Council with funds from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs, commemorating 500 years of Spanish history and culture in Florida.
0: This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society.
7: He was born in the summer of his 27th year. Coming home. Yesterday, behind him, you might say he was born again You might say he found the key for every door When he first came to the mountain. Don't
0: Colorado is certainly known for its mountains, Florida is definitely not. Mount Dora is 184 feet above sea level, technically making it a mount, but even North Florida just has gently sloping hills. Janie Gould has this look at what was a unique Florida mountain.
8: Once there was a mountain in Vero Beach. Sexton's Mountain was an oddity that rose on the barrier island across from J.C. Park the eccentric entrepreneur Waldo Sexton had finagled some fill dirt from a man who was dredging the river. Grandson Sean Sexton says Waldo got much more than a bargain for.
9: I think the guy uh, had already figured Waldo out. He put the pedal to the metal on that dredge and he filled that lot with river bottom that had stacked up higher than the trees around it.
8: Waldo never expected to see a huge mound of dirt.
9: I've heard that he was surprised. The pile sat there He didn't have that many low places to put it in. This is when it became a mountain in his mind. So he started putting the accoutrements of the mountain upon it. It started out as uh, a rustic kind of thing with big slabs of concrete that were put in place as steps. Over time, he began uh, hauling things to the mountain site, pedestals from an old water tower, Corinthian columns, certainly tiles. He had mountains of tile in his dairy pastures that he used to decorate the steps of the mountain. He called the uh, stairs the Santa Scala, the holy stairs.
8: I remember at the top there were two thrones. They looked like they might have been those of Aztec gods. Where did they come from?
9: Entirely out of his imagination. They were things that were fabricated there from things that he had. I still use things from Waldo's goodie piles all the time.
8: You have a blueprint here that shows that he was calling it the Hanging Gardens of Vero.
9: It was gonna be the centerpiece of an artist's colony, Ponce de Leon Park. He about figured that Ponce de Leon must have landed right there. It's funny, uh, I've read a National Geographic article that actually puts it somewhere between Melbourne Beach and the inlet.
8: I thought it was closer to Cape Canaveral. But I don't think anybody really knows.
9: They've used the uh, Ponce de Leon log. They have found that it's not exactly where they thought it was, certainly not St. Augustine.
8: So it was going to be an artist colony. I never knew that.
9: He had a lifelong obsession with the arts, and he wanted to be an artist. I think that the mountain was maybe a final expression of that desire. Beanie Backus told me that he tried so hard to teach Waldo how to paint, and he said it just absolutely couldn't be done. Waldo was, as we understand the creative spirit, he was very much an artist.
8: You were a young boy when the dedication was held. Do you remember it, Sean?
9: I remember when my sisters and I went over to climb the stairs. We were taken to the opening of the mountain. It was always there along the highway, A1A, and people were always stopping in to climb it. But once these stairs were finished, there was a grand event, and it just seemed like the highest thing in the world.
8: Does anybody know exactly how high above sea level it was?
9: A geodetic survey was performed, and it found it to be the highest point between Kitty Hawk and Key West. There have been many claims on the actual height.
8: Sexton's Mountain lost most of its luster over the years. Vandals chipped away at the tiles and marred them with graffiti. By the time Waldo Sexton died in 1967, any talk of an artist colony was long forgotten. But the big pile of dirt remained until 1984, when a vicious nor'easter blew into the beach. Two Sexton properties, the Ocean Grill and Driftwood Inn, were nearly washed into the sea. But workers managed to save them by shoring them up with fill from, guess what, Sexton's Mountain.
9: The mountain wound up in the place where all mountains go. It's in the sea. I guess it all turned out the way that it was supposed to. There are lots of things of which the only remainder is the story.
8: Sean Sexton is a working cattleman and a working artist.
9: Janie Gould from WQCS
0: prepared that report. This is Florida Frontiers. In 1942, on the eve of World War II, Florida was still a sparsely populated state. Now Florida is the fourth largest state. Bill Dudley talks with Florida historian and author Gary Mormino about how Florida has developed in the past half century.
3: Florida is a dream state. There, there are not many dreams. There are probably Hawaii, California, and Florida. I don't think there's an author in South Dakota today giving giving a talk about the South Dakota dream.
6: University of South Florida historian Gary Mormino. His book, Land of Sunshine, State of Dreams, A Social History of Modern Florida, focuses on the state's amazing transformation in the years following World War II. Unlike many histories, it's not all about Florida politics.
3: The book is not about Florida governors. While I'm, I'm a political junkie, I think by focusing on Tallahassee, and gubernatorial misdeeds or deeds and achievements, we miss the big
6: picture. In talking to audiences around the state, the author often begins by asking a question.
3: What changed Florida the most in your lifetime? I suspect you already know the answers.
6: A series of revolutions brought about by wartime and post-war technology have reshaped Florida. High on the list, affordable air conditioning.
3: There was really no such thing as residential air conditioning. We adapted to the land and the climate. Air conditioning changes everything, especially the window unit that's introduced in 1950 by Willis Carrier. An air conditioner cost $250. It was expensive to run. But by 1970, more than half the homes in Florida have air conditioning
6: the automobile and interstate highways have revolutionized florida
3: but like everything uh, involving technology there are consequences minorities neighborhoods typically were the ones bulldoze over a devastating impact the interstate highway system was to be a system for military mobilization and and long distance vacationers the idea that you would use it to commute from Dade City to Tampa was not part of the interstate system.
6: Mormino asks older members of his audience to remember how vast areas of Florida before 1950 were a paradise for insects, not people, setting the stage for the introduction of DDT. In
3: 1945, on a cattle farm in Osceola County, they tried the first experiment. And the reports in the paper are fascinating. The reporters say, my God, this is the miracle pesticide. Places like Sanibel, places like Cape Canaveral were just teeming with mosquitoes. People didn't live on the beach, really, before World War II. Without DDT, you can't imagine the the explosion in Florida.
6: Among the many other revolutions, the invention of concentrated frozen orange juice that actually tasted good changed the face of Florida agriculture.
3: There's probably no other revolution in, in foodstuffs that became such an instant hit. Almost overnight in the late 40s, Americans went from buying fresh orange juice and squeezing themselves to frozen juice. Is is there a better description of this than mixed with three cans of water and stir?
6: The Florida dream beckoned Americans from every social class to come seeking a new life often in retirement in newly created retirement centers.
3: There's never been anything quite like them in the history of, of the world, where you have a majority of senior citizens living in these places. Seniors never live that long. Moreover, they certainly never clustered together in large numbers before the mid-20th century.
6: One thing that is most defined post-war Florida has been runaway unplanned growth. Marmino equates the technology, the advertising, the many factors that have brought people here with the well-known cartoon in which Mickey Mouse, as the sorcerer's apprentice, tries to stop the broom from bringing more water.
3: And he doesn't know the command to halt the broom. So he takes an axe, smashes the broom into a thousand pieces, Each piece becomes a broom disciple carrying pails of water. Finally, the wise sorcerer comes and and provides the command. And in some ways, this is a perfect parable for modern Florida. How do you stop the growth in in some ways? How do you stop what brought you here in the first place?
6: Florida's future may see intergenerational conflict, water wars pitting county against county, overcrowded highways, and more. Still, the author sees no sign of a slowdown.
3: What 20 million baby boomers who are going to want to be near water. What what is the breaking point when traffic becomes so abominable, when pollution becomes such a problem, will people say it's just not the Florida they had envisioned? I mean many of you remember a Florida in 1950 that you could argue, I mean you should have seen Florida then. But to someone who sees Florida for the first time, The beach
6: is still the beach. It's easy to lament the parts of Florida that have vanished. Coastal villages, rural areas, wetlands, small towns.
3: Charming places, but they become so popular and overrun. We commemorate them for what was, not what they are now. And it is really the great challenge of modern Florida is how do you preserve for future generations the Sorcerer's Apprentice doesn't have the answer to that, nor does the wise sorcerer.
6: Historian Gary Mormino, his book is Land of Sunshine, State of Dreams, published by University Press. I'm Bill Dudley, with funding from the Florida Department of State Division of Cultural Affairs. This report was produced by the Florida Humanities Council.
0: You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Please join us again next week, and until then, visit us on the web at myfloridahistory.org. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter. Have a great week. I'm Ben Markle.